Hello. How's everybody feeling? We've got a few people out that are not feeling well today. I've got a few messages and a few people traveling. Um, so let's say a prayer for those that are fighting something. All right. Bow your heads with me. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for this glorious day. We thank you for the sunrise and we thank you for the fresh air. Thank you that we can live in a place like Grand Junction, Colorado. And Lord, uh, there's several people out in our community right now, in our church body, that just are under the weather, aren't feeling well. And, and uh, maybe there's some that are here that aren't feeling well, but decided to brave it and, and come fellowship together. So Lord, I pray that you uh, help us all get better and be strong. And... Um, Build our antibodies and our immunity and continue to be with us, Lord, and be with this church body and those that couldn't be here today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I preached on this concept of uh, serving the church and how the church is not a pyramid, rather, but we have a, a big, great foundation of Jesus and we build upon it. And we're all different roles and, and uh, different jobs within the church body. And for some people, that could have appeared to be a negative message, for some a positive message, for some an inspiring message, for some an encouraging message, for some challenging, for some convicting. And I wanted to make a point that as we serve, whether it be in teaching or praying or giving or leading or governing or feeding, however we serve, we all need reasons why we serve. And children are like that. Children, at least mine are, um, the question is constantly why. Yesterday, Ridge was out by the fireplace, and he had a little bucket of water, and he was going to throw water on the fire. I don't know why. And I said, Ridge, don't throw water on the fire. And he said, why? And I wasn't in the mood to have a discourse with my seven-year-old about why, so I just said, because I'm your dad, and I said, don't throw water on the fire. And he said, okay. That was that. Well, I didn't want it because I didn't want smoke to be filling up the outside area. But children ask why constantly. Why should we make our bed in the morning? Well, I don't know if you've ever watched the University of Texas Austin 2014 inaugural, or what do you call it, commencement speech. And Lee, you kind of chuckle, but most people have seen it. It has like 2 million views. And it's a Navy SEAL. His name's uh, Admiral William McRaven. If you haven't heard of Admiral, Admiral, Admiral William McRaven, look his speech up. And it's... Uh, the way he does certain things, I think there's 10 things he does, and he bases it off of the Navy SEAL training that he had. And the first one is, make your bed in the morning. That's his number one. You've, you've seen it, brother? Yeah, make your bed in the morning. And the reason why is because you've accomplished something right away. If you do nothing else for the rest of the day, you've made your bed and you've accomplished something. So Adm Admiral William McRaven, kids, why should we make our bed in the morning? The kids have watched that speech with me on several occasions because it's just a really good speech. Um, they ask, why do we drink water? Well, your body's made up a lot of water and you need water and it helps your brain and helps your blood and helps your body and helps your bones. Why do we wear a coat outside? Dad, why? Why should I put on a coat? Well, because if you don't, you'll get little bumps on your arm called goosebumps and you'll get cold. Okay, well, why should I eat my vegetables? Well, I asked Brenda the same thing and she, she responds with, because it's going to help you feel better and it'll make you stronger. Uh, why listen to mom and dad? Well, two reasons. One, if you don't, you get a spanking. 
And two, uh, because God says it's the, the commandment with a promise. So there's all these reasons and, and answers to this why. Why do we do what we do? And adults are no different. We ask our Heavenly Father why. At least I do. Why do we do this? And why, do, why are we supposed to obey this command? And why are we supposed to follow you this way, God? Well, the question is, why serve God and His people? Because we talked, I mean, we looked at the scriptures, but why do it? Like, I want to know what's in it for me. Or just, in general, why? So we're going to go over that this morning. Why we serve the body of Christ. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, this passage, uh, again, was written to, I think I mentioned this last week, was, meant, was written to the saints in Ephesus. So Christian people in Ephesus is who this was written to. The saints in Ephesus. And in Ephesians, if you look through Ephesians 1 and chapter 2, you kind of go through... And it says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, for he chose us to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. In him we, uh, and he made known to us the mystery. In him we, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, having believed you, uh, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So you get this point as there's this we, this us, this our, this you. This is written to Christians. This is written to people in the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 2, remember, I'm going to keep going back to this. We're answering the question, why do we serve the body of Christ? This is so applicable to each one of us, every single one of us, because it answers, there's nine or ten reasons why we serve God. And the first one is, we serve God in Ephesians 8, 9, and 10. We're going to look at that. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's saying, you're not saved because of your works, so that you cannot boast about it. You can't say, look at me, I did all these extra works, I did all these good things, therefore I am merited salvation. That's what Paul is telling them. You're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then he says something interesting right after that in verse 10. He says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the first one is, we were created, or I was created in Christ for service, for works of service. Not to skip ahead, but Ephesians 4, it says that he, it was him who gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers to prepare the saints for works of service. This is why you were created in Christ Jesus, was to serve God's people and serve the church. Now this could turn into a two-hour sermon if I took just a ton of time on every single verse, but I want to get through the nine or ten reasons why we serve the church. The first one is, that you, I, we were created to serve. We're created to serve. Number two, if you go to 2 Timothy, we're going to have a lot of verses here, so stay with me. 2 Timothy, first one is I was created. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 8. Make sure I'm in the right one here. 2 Timothy 1.9. I think that's right. 
Yeah, okay, starting in verse 8. 2 Timothy 1.8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed to testify about Jesus. Don't be ashamed to testify about me, Paul. But join me. Paul's saying to Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, what I read in this is that I am saved, we are saved for service. That's why he saved us for his purpose. His purpose is to glorify him. His purpose is that we are now the ambassadors for Christ. Our job is to go out there and spread the gospel. And through that, through, through working for one another, through working for God, for serving God, for serving one another, that's one of the reasons why we were saved. So he says, I am saved for service. So the first one is, I was created for service. Ephesians chapter 2. He created me to serve him. Ephesians 4, same thing. And second, 2 Timothy 1, 9, that I am saved for service. The third one I want to look at is in Ephesians 4. And we looked at that a minute ago, but Ephesians 4.1, it says, as a prisoner then, so back up a few pages, I'm created for service, I am saved for service, and the third one, I am called for service. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So he's challenging the church at Ephesus to live a life worthy of the calling they received. They received a call. And some people will say, well, you were called to be a preacher. My wife didn't marry a preacher. My wife didn't marry a Bible teacher. It just kind of morphed into it. I, I know Ryan and Rachel pretty well, and I don't think Rachel married someone in the church that served God every day. Was that Ryan when you guys got married? No, I don't think it was. But he became redeemed. He became saved. He became a follower of Jesus. And at this point, he was called to live a life worthy of what he received, the grace he received. And so Paul is encouraging these people, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, uh, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It is this passage that he says, it is Christ who gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, to prepare the saints, God's people, for the works of ministry, the works of service. So the third one is, I am called for service. God called us when he called us into a relationship with him. When he gave us his unmerited favor, he called us into a life of service. So I am created for service. I am saved for service to God, and I am called for service. Those are three major important aspects of our walk and our faith. The fourth one, we preached on this last week, or I preached on this last week a little bit in 1 Peter 4. The thing I like about this series, or this, this not the series, but the sermon idea, is that it's applicable to everybody that calls himself a Christian. Everybody that says, yes, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a, I'm a lover of Christ, I'm a I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, I was raised with Christ, I want to be a follower of Jesus. This is applicable to every single one in this room, if that's you. So we're created, we're saved, we're called, and then I'm gifted for service. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the first two words in verse 10 are each one. So he's talking about everyone. He's talking about you. Each one 
should use whatever gift he has received, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So when we became Christians, he's writing to Christians. The book of Ephesians was written to Christians. The book of Galatians, Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians, Philippians, 1 Peter, to the seven churches scattered throughout the nations. He's writing to Christian people. And he says, each one of you should use whatever gift you have received, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So the fourth point is that I am gifted for service. It's not something I earned. I didn't do anything for God to say, oh, look at you know, Nate, he's going to preach. Or look at Kyle, he's going to be this amazing welder and this amazing servant of God. Or Jess, I'm going to give her the, the, the keys to the fingers of heaven and I'm going to let her play the piano. He gave us these. She didn't earn anything to get that. But God gave that gift for what reason? To serve other people with it. This is applying to every one of you, brothers and sisters. And this is going to make a point in a little while about if everyone is serving, great. If not everyone is serving, we have an issue with that as far as growth goes. But that's, that's something I'll get to in a minute. So, I am created for service. I am saved for service. I am called for service. I am gifted for service. And that's so you can look at, you know, Stephanie, look at Donaldo and just say, I'm gifted. Or, or, or say, you're special. But don't say it like that. Say, <laughs> God, gave you, God gave you a gift. You are special to serve the church body. That's the way God did it. That's the way he built, he's building his kingdom up. The fifth thing, we're going to start getting into a little bit more, oh boy, is he talking to me, conviction. Go to Matthew chapter 20. If you go to Matthew 20, I'm going to start in verse 24. Actually, I'll start in verse, uh, well, you guys know the story. In Matthew 20, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus and said, what is it you want? And she said, grant that one of my two sons here may sit at your right and the other on your left in the kingdom, um, in your kingdom. And he goes, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they said, we can. And then in verse 23, he says, Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom have been prepared by my father. So when the other 10 heard about this, when they heard that the mother of these two boys said, hey, when we get in your kingdom, I want my two sons to sit at your right and your left. I want them the place of honor. The two were indignant with these two brothers. And they, Jesus called them all together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, so he's saying you've got these two people that want the place of honor next to Jesus. And Jesus' response is this. Remember, why do we serve God? That's the question. Jesus' answer is not so with you. You're not going to have rule. You're not going to rule over your, your, your brethren. You're going to rule over them. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I would go as far as to say, serving each other is commanded. It says another part in Scripture, if you want to live, if you want to be 
like Jesus, you must live as Jesus did. And I saw this one illustration where this preacher had a towel wrapped over his arm. And he says he, he washed the feet of the saints, of his disciples. That's what he did. He served them the lowest position when he says, I would rather wash the feet in your kingdom in heaven than anything else. I want to be the lowest possible person. It's better to do that than anything. It's to serve. And so when we look at these opportunities to serve, I saw a brother, he's not here this week, but last week after the sermon, he was cleaning the flies off of the windowsill. He walked around with a piece of paper and was cleaning flies off of the windowsill and putting them on a piece of paper and then he went and threw them away because he said it just bothered him to see them. Do I, does that sound like, oh, that's a menial task? No. That's like foot washing. Cleaning the floors in here, that's foot washing. That's doing what Jesus has called you to do to serve the church body because if we never did that and we never cleaned the place up and we never had communion and the pews were never moved and ordered around, the cups were never picked up, we come in this place would look like a dump. And we wouldn't have pride in what we're hearing or pride in how we're treating one another because we're in a, a trash heap. And so when Jesus is telling us whoever wants to be first must be your slave. They must be a servant. So Jesus commands us to serve. He says, be holy therefore as I am holy. And why did he come here? Ultimately to serve us to the point of death on a cross. The sixth thing that I think is really really key to understanding this idea of service is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have this, this passage of, that Paul wrote to the first, letter, the first letter that he wrote to Corinth about spiritual gifts. And he says, I'm going to give each one of you gifts for certain purposes. Now in 1 Corinthians 12, the thing is, I am needed for service. I am needed for service. I, heard, I read a story or heard a story about a, a professional baseball player, a pitcher, and he broke a small toe, a little toe, and it didn't grow back properly, and he was out of the big leagues. That little toe needed to be just the way it was on his foot in order for the rest of his mechanics to work properly because he couldn't adapt to it. A little toe kept him out of the, the major leagues. That's it. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, I want to talk about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that there were pagans somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. He goes on to talk about the different gifts and the one body, many parts. When I need you to look at your neighbor, Amy, look at Adam and say, I am needed. Like, I am needed in this church body. This isn't just something for a few people to do. I am needed in this church body. And when you look at the body of Christ in the New Testament, it says, the top of it says, one body, many parts. We all have different roles, different goals, different gifts. But we should have different gifts, different roles, but the same goal. And that goal is to bring others to Christ get the, and, and to help each other Growing within the kingdom and growing our spiritual walk, which comes down to relationships. But when he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So you've got the, the nose and the feet, and they all have different purposes. The nose is for 
smelling in the feet or for running. But if they were mixed up, you'd have a runny nose and smelly feet. And if you had that, are you paying attention? Okay. Every part of the body has a different role, which is essential to the betterment of the body. So we're all needed. I am needed. The, the, the seventh one is, I think, a little bit challenging and a little convicting, especially if um, you feel like maybe you're just doing God a favor, like you're coming into church once in a while, which I think a lot of people do. I'm just being real here. I think a lot of people just feel like, well, I did my duty. I, I, I walked into church that day. If you read Romans 12, it's really cut to the heart of what God did for us. It says in Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of God's mercy, the fact that God sent Jesus here on earth, that God came down from the throne, manifested himself as a man, voluntarily went on the cross to die for me, in view, and to die for you, in view of that, I urge you, in view of that sacrifice, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, the very fact that God did that, I want you to take that into consideration when your entire Christian walk can be encompassed in the fact that you came to church for an hour and a half a week. That's what I want you to think about. I want you to, that's what Paul wants them to think about. That's what he wants the church at Rome to think about, that in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So the seventh point, he goes, I, I got to say, I feel indebted to service to God. Somebody's saying, oh, well, that's works up. No, that's not work salvation. I feel indebted because I am not my own. I was bought at a price. He wrote that to the Corinth church in the sixth chapter, verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? So we, we, we get here sometimes. When I say we, I'm talking about the church universal. And we walk in the church building and we're like, okay, we sit down. We've done our duty for God. And that's a little scary. If you think that's what it takes to genuinely be a follower of Jesus, because that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what I see in Scripture. I mean, I could tickle your ears and say, oh no, I'm glad, I am glad you're here. I'm 100% thrilled that there's not five people that I get to preach to, but 30 instead. I love that. I love the fact that, th that 30 people can listen to the Word, the word of God. And that God has blessed me with people that will actually sit and listen without throwing something at me. But in order for me to do that, I've got to be honest with Scripture. And when it says in Romans chapter 12, I urge you brothers, I don't think it's changed. I don't think it changed years ago. I don't think it changed when, when, it, when he said it to the church of Rome, he could be saying it to the church in Grand Junction. To offer your bodies as living 
sacrifices holy and pleasing to the Lord. So why do I serve? Because I'm indebted. I'm indebted to God. I think I have a passage in here I didn't read. And it's this idea, and I... Yeah, go back, to, go back a couple pages in Romans, from Romans 12 to Romans 6. And it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament because it, it paints a very clear picture, a very clear picture, I think, to the church at Rome about who we are when, when we commit our lives to Jesus. And I know that's such a, a cliche saying, I've given my life to Jesus. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to give your life to Jesus? And in Romans chapter 6, he goes in this whole concept, this whole idea about baptism. And he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism. If we have been united like this with him in his death, we will certainly be united in his resurrection. If we have been united like this because we died, we have been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with Him. In the same way, count yourselves dead, dead to sin. And then he changes the, the, cons, or changes the, the, the thought structure. He makes the point is that when they were buried with Christ, they were raised with Christ and they're freed from sin. Okay, But then he says, what then? Because you're no longer under sin, shall we sin? Shall we continue to sin because you're no longer under law? But under grace, he makes this statement. He goes, you're no longer under law. Any, you're not under law anymore. You're not under the, 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 the penalty of the law because you have died to the law and you have lived, now you live with Christ. Now, should we, should we continue to sin because you're, you're not under law but you're under grace? He goes, don't you know? He's like, that was a rhetorical question. But then he says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone... When you voluntarily present yourself, like my wife voluntarily walked down that aisle to be married to me. She chose to be married to me. She said, I'm going to be your wife. You're going to be my husband. I didn't force her. This isn't the Middle East. This is her voluntarily walking down the aisle and saying, I present myself to you as my bride. Paul said, don't you know when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. You're either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he's telling these people, when you say to God, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I am now your slave. I volunteer to be your slave. Now, can you imagine if out of 168 hours a week, Brenda loved me for two hours a week? Think about that. If the rest of the time she completely ignored me, had nothing to do with me, but two hours a week she says, yeah, okay, I'll give you my attention now. What is it that you would like? But the 166 hours a week, she's coming to me going, hey, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. I'm going, well, am I just your, like, piggy bank? Is it all about when you need something? And I wonder if God's thinking the same thing with us 
as Christians, as a universal church. We go to God and we go, hey God, hey God, uh, can you help me out with this? Oh, hey, hey, God, can you help me out with this? Hold on, i got to get on my... Lord, can, hey, can you help me out with this, Lord? I really want this job opportunity. I really want this, and I really want that. I really want to make the baseball team. I really want to start. I really want... What if we just constantly go to God and ask for things instead of go to God and say, Hey, God, what can I do for you today? How can I serve you? I've asked you to serve me for 164 hours straight. Now, how can I serve you? Because that's the way the relationship is supposed to look. Am I wrong? I see it in Scripture. And then I look out in the world and I see everybody just asking God constantly and not giving anything in return. But a thanks, God, when you get what you ask for. And then when you don't, well, I guess I didn't pray right. I'm telling you, I, I am indebted for service. And so are you. So are you. You are indebted to God for service. I heard this one preacher say, our rent that we owe for living on this earth is service. Our rent that we owe God, because you are not your own. You were purchased. When you, when you recognize the need for salvation, when you recognize the need for forgiveness, you presenting yourself to God as a bride does to her husband. And says, yep, there you go. I'm yours. I'm yours. I am indebted for service. There's good news. I serve to make my life meaningful. I serve to be blessed. Let's define the word blessed before you start thinking I'm talking like I'm Joel Osteen up here, okay? Because I'm not. I serve to be blessed. I serve to be happy. I serve to be happy. I took six kids duck hunting yesterday. I, I pulled the trigger twice. Missed twice. But I pulled the trigger twice. And they didn't. They pulled the tr trigger a bunch more. Separately. We were safe. We had two at one time and that was it. But they... I was, I was like, I wore my waders and I was, in that, I was in that river about 12 times changing the duck patterns because the ice was building up. And I was, usually it's like, hey, Titus, get your waders. Let's go. Go get it fixed because I'm ready to shoot. But I took these kids out. I wanted to serve these kids yesterday. And it was so fun to see them blasting in the sky and seeing table fare fall out. It was awesome. I felt so good about it because I'm serving my kids and the two kids that went with us that weren't my children. But they got to go, and I just felt good about it. I was laughing hysterically when these geese flew over them, and I hear boom, 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 and they're just like, doof, 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 dropping out. I'm like, yeah, I didn't even pull the trigger. But I was working all day, loving working all day, so that they can enjoy it. You guys have been on a boat. You've, you know, you've, you've ridden a boat before, driven a boat, you're going down the river, you're going in the lake. Do that by yourself. And then put an inner tube behind you with a long rope and pull somebody. What's more fun? Seriously, what's more fun? Pulling people. Pulling people. It's more enjoyable to see them bouncing all over and occasionally, you know, that's more fun to do that. Now go to John chapter 13. 
And when I say I serve to be happy, I serve to be blessed, I do serve to be blessed. John chapter 13, Jesus talking here. And he says, It was before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus was about to die on a cross. And he says he showed them the full extent of his love. What happens next? Anybody know? Verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not know, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will fully understand. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me, with me. Jesus washed their feet. And in verse 14, it says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know that I came here to serve, do as I have done, you will be blessed. Rachel, does it fill your heart to be in here serving? Does it feel good? It does, doesn't it? It feels good. Maybe that's selfish. I don't think it's selfish. I just think it's God saying, hey, guess what? If you follow me, and if you do what I've told you to do, you're going to be happy. So why do I serve? I serve because I want to make my life meaningful. That's why I serve. That's one of the reasons why I serve. These other nine are certainly part of it. But one of the benefits is I get to be happy. Lastly, this is, the, uh, this is kind of the challenging one. I will be held accountable and rewarded for my service. Back to that, people coming into church and, you know, sit down and they hear a message and then they leave. And they don't think about church or they don't think about the body of Christ and they don't think about serving other human beings within the church body for another second the rest of the week. And then they come back in and they sit here next week. Okay, that's part of a lot of people's day-to-day. Okay, that's part of their week-to-week. But if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's writing that, again, not to, not to keep saying the same thing over and over, but he's writing to actual to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. So he's writing this to the church at Corinth, and this is kind of a universal letter here, to those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 3, there's this division going on because some are like, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Jesus and I'm, you know, I'm following this guy and you're following that guy. And, and the apostle is addressing this letter or he's addressing this issue in the letter, but he's saying, you guys say this, but let me tell you something. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. God's the one that makes it grow. You just plant water. We talked about that a while. I was yelling at the plant. You plant water, but God's the one that makes things grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man 
who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. You are serving the church by planting and watering and you will be rewarded according to your labor. We're going to be held accountable and it says that a little bit later. It talks about accountability. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer much loss. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So we've got this idea that we will be rewarded for our service in heaven. We will be rewarded for our service in heaven. We will be held accountable. What does that mean? Well, Jesus, you know, you die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We die and we sit before the judgment seat of Christ. And he goes, hey, welcome. Good to have you here, Kyle. Great to have you. I'm glad, I'm, you know, I've been looking forward to this talk. Maybe, I don't know how it's going to go. Nobody does. But Kyle stands before him and the Lord goes, so tell me, about your, tell me about your walk. What did you do? Well, he can answer one of two ways. What do you mean, what did I do? Well, tell me what you did, you know, because when, when you became a Christian, when you were saved, you didn't just zap up to heaven right away, did you? Well, no. So what did you do from the time you acknowledged and accepted Jesus Christ and you died with him? From that moment, what did you do? Uh, went to church once in a while. Well, good. What else? Well, what do you mean? Well, what else did you do for me? For my kingdom that you voluntarily accepted to be a part of. What did you do for my kingdom? I mean, I got this get out of hell free card. <laughs> you know, I'm saved. No, that's not what it's about. You see, when we sign up, we sign up. And what I expect to hear, if I'm sitting next to you and we're in a car together and we both go at the same time and I'm driving, fall asleep, and you're like, wake up! I'm expecting to hear, hi Kyle, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because we see that in Scripture. We see that in the book of Matthew 25. All these people had all these gifts and these things, and some did some of them, and others didn't. We go back to 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he has received, meaning every single one of us has received a gift or gifts from God the Father for His glory and His purpose. And if we bury those gifts, and we don't use those gifts for the betterment of the kingdom of God, I do not want to hear Jesus say, what, what did you do for me? What did you do for my kingdom? Hey, look, I know this is challenging. I get it. I get it. I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, yeah, I preach, but what is... You know, what does that mean? Am I, am I encouraging and growing? You know, if we grow, we don't have enough people serving the church body. Is that good? If all of a sudden there was a hundred more people in here and there's a hundred more families with needs and a hundred more, say, 30 more kids, can we manage that? I don't think so. You guys remember Brian Bosworth? Seattle Seahawks. University of Oklahoma, great linebacker, one of the best linebackers in the, you know, the college circuit. 
gets drafted, got run over by Bo Jackson, I'm on the two-yard line. It's pretty good stuff, right? So Brian Bosworth, trying to figure out why did he go from this being this amazing linebacker in the NFL, the best linebacker in the uh, college football league, in CAA, and then when he gets to the NFL, he lasts less than three years. Well, they did this thing on him called 30, they did this 30, ESPN 3030 on Brian Bosworth. And my understanding is his bone structure was not big enough to support his muscle structure. So all this muscle continued to grow on his bones. He got busted for steroids too, but he, all this muscle continued to go on his bones, but his bones couldn't support it. And so he took a pretty hard hit and he was done. That was the end of his career. Can the church look like that? Where we've got all these people coming in, we've got all this meat and muscle coming in, but we don't have the structure to maintain it without something bad happening. And so for in order for the church to grow, which is what God has called us to do, is to grow the kingdom of God, to share the gospel, to go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, the Great Commission, the whole Great Commission, not half it, the whole Great Commission. We're asked to do that, but can we? Do we have the structure in place to be able to do that when God blesses us with people saying, hey, I want to know more about Jesus? In uh, 1961, January 20th, John F. Kennedy stood in front of America and he gave his inaugural speech. It's 20 degrees outside. He takes off his top coat. He wanted to show his youth and vigor, you know, barely won the presidency. So he had a 1,355-word speech, fairly short. for he, wanted, he didn't want it to be long-winded. So it was a 1,355-word speech. And towards the end, he, 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 he spoke the, the famous line that people across America were just enthralled with. He was trying to build unity and service within the United States of America. He was warning of the potential nuclear war and avoiding it, and he was warning of the Cold War, and he stood before these people, and he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And it united a group of people. It united our country. And I would ask the same thing within the church body. Like, what can you do for the church rather than expect what the church can do for you? How can you serve the church? Many of you are serving. Don't hear this as a condemnation at all. If you're not serving, why? Or why not? Is there something you could do for the church body that's going to give glory to God. And then realize these benefits because guess what? You're created for service. You're saved for service. You're called to service. You're gifted. You're needed. You're commanded. You're indebted. You're expected and you will be judged based on your service to God.
If you need to find a place to fill or a seat to fill, fill it. Ask people, what can I do? I had a, we had some friends over last night, some near and dear friends, and uh, I've heard this gentleman say at least a dozen times since I've known him, the most important thing in his mind that the church body needs is relationships. Relationships within the church body. Because how do you know what others need and how do you know how to serve if you don't even know the people that need it or you don't even know the people that are serving? You've got to have these relationships. So if we're going to be a church body that genuinely affects your neighbor, someone sitting next to you, or the neighbor that lives next to you, because the next couple of series I'm hoping to do on evangelism and, and reaching out, we're getting to that time of year when people are starting to think about well, maybe I need to start going to church. I mean, we've got the Christmas season out of the way, but we've got Easter coming up. And so what are we going to do for Easter? Because people come, you know, they're, they're Christers, Christmas and Easter Christians, which is what I was for two decades. Christmas and Easter, that's when I go to church. But there's going to be people asking, like, what do, hey, we should probably go to, we've got to get the kids in there once in a while, you know. That's where it starts. So how do we serve to get people a part of the kingdom of God? All right. Can I get an amen? amen? All right. Who has communion this morning? Dennis.